You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. We're in the middle of a sermon series entitled Sinners and Saints, in which we've been looking at um, the book of Romans. And today we continue in chapter 7, which has really sort of the middle portion um, of a a really big thematic shift in Romans, where we've seen um, what God has accomplished for us in the work of Jesus, which was really chapters 1 through 5, to now what that means for us. Like, so what what is God going to accomplish in us through the gospel, right? So he's done something for us, but that something is not just something that sort of stands alone or that we just kind of look at and marvel at, but that it's something that actually changes, that actually causes a, a response or a result. And uh, so we're, we're really in a portion where we're about to kind of hit a crescendo in uh, in that argument of sorts. And so um, we've almost really reached the summit of Romans, which is chapters 8 and 9, depending on sort of where your favorite portion of, uh, of that book is. Probably one of my favorite portions in the entire Bible. And so um, I don't get to preach that next week, but that's okay. We've got capable hands that will be here um, next week to do that. So forgive me if this is redundant, but I do want us to approach this text today in particular with the context of the entire book of Romans, because we have to remember it's so easy to read the Bible, to look at the Bible sort of through the lens of chapters as maybe isolated portions of text, when really, when it was written, there was, Paul didn't sit there and write, okay, so this is going to be verse 16. He didn't do that. He just wrote the letter, and so it's a, it's very much a sequential line of thought, and so uh, chapters 1 through 3, verse 23, were all about the fact that there is none righteous, that all, in fact, are unrighteous, whether it was in their law-keeping or in their law-breaking, that all are without excuse, and that in their ignorance of the law or in their misuse of the law, everybody stands on sort of a level ground, that none of us have anything inside of us that we could possibly put forward um, that would be acceptable to God. Chapters 3, uh, 24 through really the conclusion of chapter 5 tell us that righteousness is provided for us in Jesus and that consequently so is our justification before a holy God, meaning we can come before God with boldness and confidence because not it's not anything that we could do or provide, but it's something that Jesus has provided for us, that his works were acceptable to God, and that upon our reception of that, the Lord looks upon us in that light. And so uh, then we arrived at chapter 6, really through um, about halfway through chapter 7, in which we saw that by virtue of this marvelous gift of grace, we have died to sin and to the law, and we have been made alive to righteousness and to grace. And so we see um, a compelling sort of reason for holy living, for distinct living, for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, in light of the marvelous grand grace that Paul sort of exposed for us um, all throughout the first six chapters. And so the the question really that, that came at the end of that portion was, do we sin because we are under grace or in order that grace may abound? And Paul's resounding answer to that was, by no means. And so with that, we arrive at today's sermon um, from chapter 7, uh, verses 7 through 25, and the sermon is entitled, The Law of Sin and Death. And so um, we've talked over the past couple of weeks about sin and the law, and Paul is going to recapitulate with great clarity. So he's really expanding upon what he talked about in verses 1 through 6. Three important things for us. Uh, Number one, the, the law is a mirror. 
The law is a mirror. And we read this in verse 7. It says this, What then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So here's the thing. Um, Paul, again, is explaining to us the difference between um, the sort of what the law is often pictured as, which is kind of an offense to us or something that oppresses us. Um, and he's helping us understand that ultimately the law was given um, for, for these couple of reasons. The law serves as a mirror in which we not only see the perfect standards of God, but we also see the imperfectness that is emblazoned upon us. So if you've ever read the Scarlet Letter, you're essentially like Hester in the sense that when you look at the law, it accuses you. It it writes that red A on your chest, and even worse for us, it's actually something that produces death, as, as we've seen, um, not only in the sort of historical context of the Bible and the fact that upon Adam's sin, death enters the world, but also in the results in our own lives, day by day. And so we live in this body of death full of the evidence of our own selfish depravity. That's what the, that's what the law does for us. It, it holds up that mirror and we get to see every pimple, every zit, every you know, uh, disgusting thing that you could come up with that would be on your body. Um, it shows us all of those things. The law is an instrument that was originally intended to reveal to us the holiness of God and give us a standard by which to live. It was given to us in grace and in holiness. And he's going to explain that in a little bit. But many of us don't look at it that way. And most likely, this is the case, because ultimately what the law does is condemns those who dwell upon it. Right? Who of us can look upon the law? Who of us can read uh, maybe sort of the, the Old Testament, just the Ten Commandments, just ten, and look at that and say, yeah, I think I've done a pretty good job on that. No, anybody who has read that will at some point acknowledge that, yes, one of those things I've at least failed. And, and the, the Bible, Bible goes on to tell us that if we failed at one, we failed at the whole thing. And so this law serves as a mirror for us, but it is not itself what corrupts us, right? It's our sin that corrupts us. Our temptation is to look upon the law as something that is abhorrent or something that is restricting, something that is condemning, or maybe even to, sort of to use a, a, a modern word, something that is bigoted. But the truth is that it's not the law which is corrupt, nor is it the law that leads us to corruption itself. Right? So a, a lot of times we try to blame shift, but what Paul is going to tell us in the, in the following verses is that it's not the law that has caused us to sin. He says in verse 8, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, killed me. And we've talked about this the last couple of weeks, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this point. But ultimately what it comes down to is that there is nothing so attractive as that which is forbidden, right? We've, we've used this example sort of week after week. If mom tells you not to touch the stove, the first thing that you want to do, something that you had never thought about doing before, is to touch the stove. And it's a stupid idea, right? I have scars to prove it. So... Um, 
But that's ultimately what, what Paul is saying about the law, that all the law does is call attention to that which is already in us. It's not the law that's evil, um, but sometimes the more law we see, the more evil we become because the prohibition itself is what incites us to, to sin. So that's what he's saying when he says, you know, I, I learned what coveting was, and then when I learned what it was, I wanted to do it more. We want to be able to possess what we are not allowed to possess and to do what we are not allowed to do. Deep within us, there exists a rebellious spirit. Does there not? And so the conclusion that Paul comes to really about the law is, is number one, it's a mirror for us. It does not actually cause us to sin, but it does reveal it. And that the law is actually itself holy. Paul goes on to tell us that it is in fact righteous, that it is in fact Good. In verses 12 and 13, he says this, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond Measure. I mean, how much more clearly can Paul speak? It is not that grace is good and that law is bad, right? So this is, we have to understand this. This is the traditional sort of argument all throughout Christian history. You have people who are antinomian, meaning they believe that the law has no consequence, no bearing upon their lives anymore because grace exists, which is precisely what Paul is arguing against in this entire portion of Scripture. And then you have people who are so driven by the law that they can't operate in grace because they want to quantify sort of their good works. They want to be able to look at a set list of rules and standards and say, check, 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 check. And yet what Paul is telling us here is that there is an entirely different interpretation of this. It is not that grace is good and that law is bad. It is that law is good and sin is bad. The law is holy. The commandment is holy, just, and good. What I do with these things may bring death and destruction, but that is, that is ultimately my sin, right? So here's the thing. We, we have to understand this from, from two perspectives, and we try to address this like this on, on a weekly basis. We want to talk to uh, the believer because we want to understand, you know, for those of us who are here that are Christians, we want to understand what this scripture actually calls us to. And then we want to address the non-believer because this should be a place, the church should be a place where we can ask questions, where we can be free to doubt. In fact, Jude tells us that we should be patient with those who do doubt. So for the believer, you are the whole source of your sinfulness, as much as we try to escape or shift the blame onto another person or maybe even onto another external force like the law, it is our inherent wickedness that has driven us to sin and death, period, end of story. So we can't disregard the law, we can't put away the law, we can't disdain the law, we can't marginalize the law because it's not the law that's done anything to us. If you're not a believer in the room, think of it like this. Um, the law is like a sword. There's nothing evil about a sword. If, if I pick up a sword and kill somebody with it, it's not the sword that goes on trial. It's not the sword that is put in prison, right? So what he is saying is that sin deceives and kills, and the tool that it uses sometimes is 
the law, the commandment itself. The sense of restriction that the law gives you as an unbeliever is only because you fail to meet it. And so you, just like us as Christians, try to shift blame and escape the weight of consequences, of broken relationships, of guilt, by blaming someone or something else. The law only shows you the truth about yourself. That's why it's uncomfortable. That's why we want to find ways to discredit it. That's why we want to find ways to put it aside, to ignore it. So here's the thing. The the law is what condemns us. The law is what shows us our wrong, and yet it is perfect, holy, and just. It was our rebellious nature that caused us to, again, pervert that which was given in grace, right? So we see that throughout the story of the Bible. Like, the Bible's very consistent on this, that God created all things good, that, that everything was created in rhythm and in harmony, And that it was our sin, that it was our selfishness, our desire to pursue self-glorification that actually perverted that which was created good, right? It's the same instance here. The law was given in kindness, in mercy. God, the God who we offended from the beginning, chose still to reveal himself in the law. The law is holy, just, and good. And we are the ones that pervert that. Yet, here's the thing, this is where we struggle a little bit, right? Because we read last week that we, if, if we're Christians, have died to the law in order to be joined to another, right? In order to be joined to Christ. So the question should become for us, why do we still struggle? Why do Christians still sin? So if you're not a Christian in the room, just know that that's true. We say that every week. We're an imperfect church because we're a church filled with imperfect people. Paul will expound from his own experience, and he's really going to show us a great deal of vulnerability for someone who, uh, who is an apostle of Jesus Christ, who Jesus himself revealed himself to on the road to Damascus. Like, like we're talking about a pretty, pretty solid dude from, from everything that I can tell. He wrote, you know, the majority of the New Testament. He actually writes in other books that, that, that according to the law, he was actually blameless, like that he, he was a righteous man. And he says, I consider all those things worthless, rubbish, trash. And so we're going to see some, some great, great vulnerability from Paul. And really what he's going to show us is that, that we all operate in a dual nature if we are a Christian. That if we're a Christian, our flesh wages war against us daily. And it shouldn't take much for any of us as Christians to affirm what Paul is going to tell us here in just a second. How many times have we done what we ought not to do? How many times have we operated in direct contradiction with the new identity that's been given to us in Christ, right? I mean, that's what Romans 1 through 5 tells us. Tells us that something's been secured for us. Tells us that we're a new people. I mean, that's, that's really the whole crux of the New Testament. That you're a, a, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, that you've been adopted into the family of God, that you are sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. And yet, day after day, nay, even moment after moment, we forsake that identity and we crawl back to our old identity, our identity in the flesh. And so Romans 7.14 says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. This is Paul talking about himself. So how do we reconcile this, right? 
How do we reconcile this? Because in verse 6 of, of, of chapter 7, what did Paul say? He said this. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So how do those two things go together? Paul is saying we've been made new. Paul is saying that, that we now have the Spirit, that we operate in a new way. And here he's saying, my flesh is sinful. That I'm, that I'm apart from, from really what I'm, what I'm called to be. We are flesh, assailed by sin and wholly corrupted. Yet, as believers, we are dead to this sin and alive to Christ by the Spirit, right? That's what Romans is, has told us up to this point. So the question becomes, if by God's grace we have died to the law and we are joined to Christ, if we have been given a new way of the Spirit, why do we still live in the old way? The way of sin, the way of death. There's a key nuance that, that Paul is going to make here, and, and ultimately it becomes a question of desire. If you read in verses 15 through 19, it says this, For I do not understand my own actions. <laughs> How many of us have felt that before? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So what Paul, what Paul is stating for us here is that it's ultimately a question of desire, right? That in violating his best intentions, Paul was agreeing that the law was a noble thing, right? That's what he says in verse 16. If I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. He's saying in my heart of hearts, I, I want to do the law. I want to follow the, really the, the pattern for life that God has laid out for me. If it were not good, he, he would not have had any sense of guilt when he failed to live up to its standards, right? Talking about the law. His best intentions were one with the law. He cries out almost like David where he says the, the law of the Lord is something that he delights in. Brothers and sisters, this is the difference between someone who has really been changed by the gospel and someone who merely assents mentally to the fact that Jesus existed. You may even mentally assent to the fact that Jesus came, died, and then rose from the grave on behalf of, of you and I. You may mentally assent to that. But if it doesn't lead you to a new set of desire, if it doesn't lead you to this new place, you've got some serious examining to do. You've you got to ask yourself, am I someone who just looks at the gospel and says, that sounds great, I'd like a little bit of that with my fries? Or is it something that changes your course completely? Because what Paul is telling us here is that it is something that changes us completely. This is how the gospel changes people. It doesn't make imperfect people perfect, but it does change us from people who did not want to do good to now people who desire to do good, right? Remember, remember what Romans 3 told us, that there is, there is none righteous, that nobody does good. 
that all have turned aside and, and become altogether worthless, right? Like that is what is true of every single person that walks on this planet. So if that is an absolute truth from the word of God, from the mouth of God himself, what hope do we have of changing that? Nothing but the gospel. The gospel has changed Paul the, completely, totally, and irrevocably to the point where he now desires to do good, something which by nature he was incapable of doing. The same is true for you and I if we are believers, if we follow Jesus. And so here's the thing. If you're, if you're a believer in the room, there's, there's something that we've seen really the past couple of weeks that we cannot escape. Brothers and sisters, you and I cannot exempt ourselves from the law. There's, there's no way. If we have no desire to do good, if we are confronted by our sin with the truth of God's word and we find ourselves unwilling to change, we have to ask ourselves if our hearts have really been transformed by the gospel. Do we just want Jesus as Savior and not as Lord? Because you have to take him at both. Otherwise, you haven't been changed. You can't bring Jesus into your life and still sit on the throne. If you're not a believer in the room, many of you have had poor experiences with Christians or maybe in churches. Perhaps you've been judged, shamed, or despised because you didn't conform to a biblical moral standard. This is ridiculous. And let me tell you why. Even Christians don't live up to the moral standard. We all fail daily. And that's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that we have new desires and that day by day, moment by moment, by the grace of God, we will arrive at his throne perfected because of the work of Jesus, not because of anything that we've done. So if you're a Christian in the room, do you see how silly it is to expect people to conform to a moral standard before coming to Christ? You, you who have received the riches of God's grace towards you in Christ Jesus are going to expect of someone to live at a certain level of maybe moral capability when your entire belief system tells you that you were utterly incapable, altogether worthless. It's ridiculous. It's silly. That's not the gospel. That's not good news. It's good advice. It's just like every other religion that says, do this, do that, do this, do this, and maybe you'll earn enough good favor. That's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus came to, to share. That's not what Jesus came to accomplish for you. Share the gospel with people. Paul's going to make one final observation here in verse 20 that is very important. Um, and he says this, Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So what is he saying? Right? Is he just blaming another external force? Is he saying it's sin in me that did this? It's not, I'm not culpable for this. No, that's not, that's not what he's saying. 
But what he is stating is that if he did that which was contrary to his own deepest desires, his new desires, the new desires that were given to him by the Spirit, that the real culprit must have been sin that lived within him. That in failing to live out his best intentions, he had fallen back into slavery to sin. The experiences of life led Paul to conclude that whenever he desired to do good, that which was good, sin reared its ugly head. His desire to do what was right was inevitably confronted by sin's insistence that he do the opposite. So regular was this opposition that Paul actually designates it as a law, right? In that next verse, he says this, So I find it to be a law. And so he's not talking about the, the law given from God. He's talking about like a rule or an observation um, or uh, essentially something that is observable. And he says that every time that I want to do good, sin is right on its heels. It's begging me. It's pleading me to turn, to go the opposite way, to operate in the flesh and not in the spirit. And it's so persistent and it's so consistent. Right? I mean, if you're a believer in the room and you, you can't admit to this, you don't know the gospel. And you don't know the truth about yourself. You haven't looked at the law. You haven't let the law reflect to you how horrific you really are. And by consequence, you don't know the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the sheer brilliance and magnitude of the gospel that says that all of that has been removed from us by the grace of God in Christ. Ultimately, this conflict that, that Paul is experiencing, this, this waging of war between flesh and spirit, is something, brothers and sisters, that if you're a Christian, you will war with until it is finished. But the hope is there that it will be finished. Because 1 John 3 tells us that we will see God and we will be like him. Not in that we will get to rule over everything and be omnipotent, but that we will be made holy, but that we will be made right, but that we will be cleansed, but that we will live according to the law and it will not be burdensome for us. Romans uh, 7, 22 through 23 say this, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This is, this is the battle that, that you and I wage. If you're, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, like inspired author of biblical text, can admit to this, can we not just admit? Can we not just be honest with one another? Because this is why community is so important. Because you get to step into a room full of people that know that this is true of everyone in that room. And so you can bring your sin to the table. You can bring your wretchedness to the table. You can bring that struggle to the table. And we can encourage one another, as Hebrews 10 tells us, that we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. If we do what is contrary to our new desires in Jesus, the question becomes, how can we be rid of this pesky flesh? How can we be rid of sin? How can we escape the immeasurable bounds of our own hypocrisy as Christians? We will answer this in weeks to come. 
But here we arrive at the crescendo, the height of Paul's despair. In verse 24, he says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And there's a, there's a distinct image here. In this time, uh, one of the punishments for maybe a particularly heinous crime involving, uh, involving the taking of another person's life, one of the punishments would be this. They would actually strap that corpse to you, and you would wear it until it rotted off. It's horrific, and it's disgusting. And Paul is saying, who, who will deliver me from this weight? Who's going to get this corpse off of me? I've been made new. This is old. Why is it still here? Why do I still suffer underneath its weight? Why do I still smell its residue? When Paul makes this judgment about himself, he is making it out of a sense of moral anguish and profound remorse for his sin. This is the deepest kind of broken and contrite heart expressing itself here. One that an unredeemed person could never have. If you haven't experienced this, if you haven't been grieved by your sin, if you haven't looked upon your sin and seen the fact that it has offended a good, perfect, and holy God who has been, done nothing and been nothing but gracious to you, and it has not caused you to shed a tear, it has not caused you um, to grieve and despair. Probably don't know the gospel. See, people who are not saved, people who are not Christians, may have a broken and contrite heart for the loss of something or for a fear of something, but not a genuine remorse for having offended God himself. Only the convicted sinner can cry out like that. Only like, like David in the psalm. Right? A broken and a contrite heart. He says, deliver me, blot out my transgressions. Against you and you alone have I sinned. So here's the, the conclusion, essentially. Christian, our sanctification, meaning our growth in holiness, our ability to follow Jesus, our, our growth into the image and likeness of Christ, is progressive. The peripheral power of sin is still raging and is in fact very potent. But in the core of us, there dwells a self that has been made over in the image of God. At the core of us, we delight in our inner being in the law of God. That's what Paul says. And so what I would ask of you, and the reason, one of the reasons that we exist as a community, one of the reasons that the neighborhood parish is so important, one of the reasons it's so important to be known in your church is so that we can together make war this day on the tyranny of sin and that we might be reminded of our glorious new identity in Christ. If you're not a believer in the room, if you feel this weight, if you feel the weight of your sin, if you find yourself crying out for deliverance, there is one who is able. The final verse in chapter 7 says this, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
This, brothers and sisters, is what Romans 8 is all about. The assurance and the confidence that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Thanks be to God. You'll want to come back next week. You won't want to miss what is one of, if not the most, beautiful portions in the entire Bible where this tension, the tension of, of flesh and spirit are released by the beauty and the grandeur of the gospel of God given to us in His Son and applied to us by the Spirit.